0: Stay free and enjoy the episode. Ho, 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 you Awakened Wonders. Thanks for joining us for our Christmas special, our festive sessions of intellectual analyses. Today, I'm speaking with Jonathan Pajot. If you don't know who Jonathan Pajot is, then uh, you, well, you should know because he's amazing. I learned of him through Jordan Peterson. He's a French-Canadian artist and storyteller and philosopher. And we talk today about The Necessity for Awakening. We talked through folklore and fairy tales. We talked a lot about Christianity, this being Christmas and all. And we talked about his new book, Snow White and the Widow Queen. There's so much fantastic stuff. We talk about Christianity and its ability to transform reality. We talk about the mystery of suffering. We talk about power and authority, sainthood, canonization, the death of culture, the breaking down of deeper meaning is... All about your, it's exactly what you're gonna love. Jonathan's book, Snow White and the Widow Queen, is available now. There's a link in the description. You will love the way he thinks and the way that he talks. This is the sort of thing that you want to listen to around Christmas. You're gonna be cleverer after this. I feel like I am already. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
1: it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. I hear this is your Christmas episode.
0: I thought, what better way? To celebrate Christ than with Jonathan and Pajot. <laughs> <laughs> I should be with my we'll family to help with right. right. Forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Me and you now
1: on Zoom with Jonathan is much better for Christmas.
0: I suppose let's think about where we are in this period of time like there are some people that will say this is the winter solstice there are other people that will say that this period of festivity has long lost its meaning or perhaps has has become a a true symbol of the one global faith of materialism rela- rationalism commerce and commodification I wonder Jonathan how how intelligent and awakened people can reclaim Christianity as a meaningful ideology in the sort of post-atheist period, when the, the devil has had all the best tunes, when the intelligentsia have had all the best riffs, when it can be harder and harder to access divinity, when people seem more and more adrift from even the most rudimentary morality, a time of despair, a time that sometimes feels like revelation. Is being played out among us. How how do you? And I I understand that you use uh, like that. You know, when we spoke briefly before, you said that you know, sort of Eastern Orthodoxy. I think is what you said. Like there, there are aspects. How is it that we find our way back to Christ, or at least back to the divine, in such a rational, materialist, reductive, and at some points painful time?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, first of all, I would say the story of christmas is a is a good story to think about that. You know the story of Christmas happens during uh you know Caesar Augustus's rule, and you know he th- there's a sense in which Roman tyranny is established at the beginning of the the story, and then you have these characters that are you know can't find a home at the same time as they're facing uh a tyranny um and so in some ways, the story of Christmas is related, by the way, also to the summer solstice, because the summer solstice, uh, the, the winter solstice is also the same, right? The sun's going down, the sun's going down, the sun's going down, and you think, that's it, right? We're just going to die in darkness, you know, things are going to get worse and worse. And then there's a surprise that happens at the bottom of the world, where, uh, you know, a candle is lit, a flame gets, uh, uh, a candle is lit in the darkness, which... Let's say, is a preview of the of the next world, or a preview of something which is beginning. And so that is what happens when we feel like everything's is out of control is we have to look for seeds. That's the best way to think about it because the big system is going to run out. and what what's left to find is the new beginning or the new seed. And this is what the story of of Christmas is. And obviously, the story of Christmas is a very dark story, by the way. You know, we th- we tend to think about it as being very hopeful. but, When the seed appears in the world, uh, King Herod sends his soldiers to kill all the the children, right, to hunt down that seed. And so this is something that we have to understand is going to happen as we look for hope, is that the system will not stand for it. You know, the system will not stand for something new which is beginning or something which is being rekindled, let's say. Uh, But at the same time, it's an adventure. You know, there's a weird thing, you know, you you talked about how the devil had all the best tunes and and uh, that is also kind of running out. It's like as we're drowning in porn and video games and mumble rap and, you know, a kind of a culture that's and, and, you know, Hollywood is failing. Disney is going bankrupt. You can feel everything is running out. And in that moment, the surprise of finding that being a Christian, for example, is the most rebellious thing you can do or that. You know, going, getting married and having children and, you know, and trying to live a decent life is the most punk rock thing that you can do at the moment. So I think that there is in in that type of attitude to look at it like, you know, you are going to be against the world. That is what's going to happen. And it has a cost, but it also has a, there is a kind of secret hope in that, you know, to know that that's how it's going to go.
0: So I I love your retelling, your interpretation of the nativity as a time where hope is found in opposition to tyranny. When you said we feel like we have no home, I know that a lot of people that I've spoken to say that people that in the post-60s period would have been regarded as classic anti-establishment liberal lefties that do not trust authority, that know that free speech is vital, that know that the state is bad, that you can't trust the legacy media, you can never trust the man. And if the authorities want you to do it, whether it's a, a, a mandated medication, a lockdown, the support of a war, whether it's the clo- foreclosure of free speech and advocating for furthermore censorship and the, the ability of the, power to shut the, the powerful to shut down your individual rights, these ideas would have once been opposed. Now, somehow... The neoliberal left became authoritarian. They became about centralized authority, the tyranny that you described. The uh, Nazarenes of uh, uh, escaping. I, I would have. Uh, I would say now that is the establishment. Is the sort of in, in the USA. I know you're a, a French Canadian. Is that appropriate to call you that? Yeah. Uh, like the. That that little country to the south of you there, that you know their Democrat Party or your Trudeau over there, liberalism now, it, I, I would say fascism now is garnered in neat little haircuts, sweet little riffs, the language of compassion and kindness masks a, a, an incredible drive for authoritarianism and control. And I like your reference too, Jonathan, to the to the slaughter. Of the innocence and aspect of the nativity that's sort of understandably overlooked because it would be difficult to recreate in decorations I don't, right. <laughs> <they're> baby entrails <laughs> around the window it might you know I prefer the manger myself but, right. personally um so but uh, you, you also touched on something that, that that somehow traditionalism conservatism even certainly Christianity uh, might be the most rebellious thing that you could do in this. Do you think this is because there is we have reached a kind of huh, moral singularity uh, in our times where we are uh, on the precipice of near nihilism, that materialism has brought us to an absolute crisis of meaning that people are scrap that people are still trying to metabolize individual identity into some kind of manner some alchemy is being practiced where with gold is trying to be rested from the from the uh prima when the prima materia is literally just materia rather than something transcendent or ulterior do you think that that has left us a sort of a a, a a junction of nihilism jonathan
1: yeah, th- there's a relationship between individualism, nihilism, and tyranny, which is something people might think is is funny. But, you know, the way that societies normally work is that there's a we have these buffered structures, right? We have this hierarchy of structures where you know, we're individuals and families and communities and churches and clubs. And there's a sense in which all these buffers, they protect us from the glaring sun of the authority up there, right? because, you know, you know, I don't know, like the, the different clubs that you can participate in. They the, we all kind of give each other support so that so that we don't have to always deal with the highest authority. Now, with the 60s, it's a good example. The 60s, as it moved towards individualism and rebelled against family structure, religious structure, you know, and then social structures, schools, all these intermediary structures, it actually opens up a door for the government and the authorities to come and take that space because that space has to be filled that we actually need to have the roads paved and we need things to happen so as we kind of move towards this materialism it it gets filled up so there's a relationship between a movement towards material uh, individualism materialism and the tyranny coming to compensate for our own kind of selfish desires that we you know as we move towards our own selfish little idiosyncratic desires somebody has to Somebody has to cover all the bases, and that ends up being, you know, the state, whatever, however you want to phrase it. These these growing, growing power structures that start to impose themselves on us, and it looks invisible at first, but then when a crisis appears, right, like what happened in COVID, then all of a sudden you can see the tendrils, like they just glow, and now you can see how the world has been taken up by all these these uh, these authoritarian structures.
0: Yes, and one of the problems of may uh, of the reification and deification of the state is the state seems to have to oper- certainly these days in the kind of democracies that you and I are from exists as part of a a, a polarity that, it, that it, so it, it cannot be you cannot have an omnipotent state without tyranny you cannot demand the kind of surrender that you know Galatians would ask of us say I've been thinking lately Jonathan about like that the the solution to my crisis of identity is to die on the cross with Christ that he can be reborn in me. And, you know, these ideas can be found outside, obviously, outside of Christianity. You know, I suppose the word Islam itself means surrender. I suppose Marcus Aurelius spoke of, you know, uh, you are dead. Now live the rest of your life properly. But do you think that there is something uh, uniquely benevolent? or uh, uniquely nourishing about the idea that we uh, or, or obviously you do cuz you're a christian but what is uniquely nourishing about being like about the the christian surrendering the self not to the state your new material god whether you live in a communist or capitalist country but to something higher and indeed does that make you and how and is that a, is that a radical proposition and does that radical proposition involve the taking up of I mean that metaphorically
1: <laughs> I mean that metaphorically uh well this is the place where it's uh this is the place where Christianity in terms of politics is complicated you know in the sense that what Christians believed at least at the outset is that you will be able to transform the state but not through revolution that in fact the Christians were actually quite Uh, Even they were submitted to the state that persecuted them, if you think of the early centuries when when Rome was authoritarian uh, over them, persecuting them, they would submit to all the rules that Rome gave them except for the ones that betrayed their conscience, except for the ones that were against what they believed to be true beyond what the state proposed. So they were actually model citizens, uh, and they believed that the transformation that would happen would be through self-sacrifice and through self-transformation. Like a good example to understand this is the manner in which the according to tradition, the way that the that the the gladiata, gladiatorial games ended in Rome. you know, the gladiator the the, the uh, these fighters would come and kill each other. And then, as Rome was becoming Christian, one day a Christian man went onto the field and stood between the two gladiators and said, "You know, stop in the name of Christ." And obviously the gladiator just killed him. <laughs> and that was it. That was the end of the gladiators fight in rome everybody walked out of this of the stadium and there were no more fights and so that is in some ways the image of of the christian which is that through you know holding on to the the true light and then be willing to sacrifice your own desires for that rather than thinking you know that we're, we're going to rise up and and cause a revolution with the the raising up and causing revolution is actually what brings about tyranny most of the time if you think of the way that revolutions happen in our history, you know, the French Revolution leads to Napoleon, the Russian Revolution leads to Stalin. Uh, these revolutions usually lead to tyranny.
0: Why did you not include the American Revolution?
1: Well, the American Revolution is an interesting one. It's true because it it it's it's the exception to the rule, and it would be interesting to see why. And maybe there there are good reasons. To look at that, to understand why the Americans didn't lead to, why didn't lead to autocracy? At not not at the outset. Uh, obviously, in the long run, now America is moving towards autocracy as well. But it it did take a few centuries, which is not bad.
0: Yes, it is moving towards autocracy. I suppose we would offer from the outset, Jonathan, that it was ultimately an external colonial settler power that that they were rejecting. So there was the opportunity to sort of actually reclaim that land and there weren't, I suppose, the need for the type of brutality that would have been just, I don't know whether it was justified, but certainly happened in the French and Russian yeah. revolutions. Um, but then if it is sliding towards technocracy now, if we are even seeing... A kind of a, a, a migration towards autocracy that requires really the uh, sublimation of the idea of nation. Is that what we're really experiencing now? That, that, that America is just a sort of a, um, a sort of a panacea for the ordinary people, while the real business of power takes place on a strata that transcends national boundaries. Indeed, isn't that the essence of global corporatism? And then isn't that? And then what becomes the duty of the citizen? Of of the christian citizen if we are sliding uh, uh, towards uh, uh, the kind of global tyranny that i imagine both of us sense is happening yeah
1: it's true that that seems to be what's happening you know and and as we and it's interesting to see both things happen at the same time which is on the one hand you know hand in hand with uh globalism comes the you know the rainbow coalition this self identification right this idea that i can be whatever i want to be to extremes that are so radical, you know, that even people in the 60s would have been surprised to hear that you can, you know, that you can transform yourself so much. So you can see this move towards complete idiosyncrasy, like a kind of pornification of society where your every little single idiosyncratic desire finds its niche, you know. And at the same time, you can see the the, the tyrannical structure get bigger and bigger and become in indeed uh, transnational. And I think that your approach and your position and you know a, a few people they've been aware to that it's no longer a question of capitalism and communism that's not like to, to remain with those categories is is to blind us to what's actually happening. The gigantism is is corporations and governments or whatever is beyond governments holding hands together. Uh and so we, we have to see it that way or else we're we're gonna we're gonna find ourselves in a fight that's useless. Like it's like, at this point Google is is no better than you know the world economic forum and these giant corporations have seemed to be we saw it again during covid how they just locked hands and just acted in unison towards towards uh you know kind of very um I could say uh, not clear goals cl- goals that were not clear to us let's say or at least not transparent
0: some might argue that the efficacy of christianity the is its sort of utility its plasticity that cults of christianity around the world can uh, morph into what that you know, geographical territory requires of it a, a friend of mine says that like that in uh, Latin and Central America, the type of Christianity has the theatricality of the paganism that preceded it there in Africa, the facet of Christ as the healer is um, prominent, maybe in Northern European as the kind of uh, Lutheranism, Calvinism and the new Protestant movements demonstrated. You get a kind of ardent Christ, uh, steeled for uh, the chill winds of the Northern Northern (laughs) hemisphere. Uh, And, and perhaps what we like have now is a sort of a crit. Like, and perhaps this was always baked. You know, what would the first century Christianity, first century Christians, have made of the Christianity of Constantinople onwards, of the the Christianity of empire, the Christianity of the papacy, the Christianity. Of um, of even of, of of globalism, the Christianity Christianity is a sort of a vaccine against uh, opposing opposing tyranny. You know, kind of a settled insular private little altar in my mind, rather than the sort of, uh, an overt form of Christianity. Um and and if there is something to be said for this sort of plasticity being the reason for the ascendancy of Christianity, rather than some built-in veracity and connection to a sublime truth then ought we be revisiting some of the pagan precursors that there are certainly many of the aspects of the myth of Christ uh Uh, uh, retains, whether it's Osiris and the rebirth or whether it's even aspects of the I know the figure of the green man is one that interests you and one that seems to be resurgent in the international imagination or what Jung might call I suppose the collective unconscious so firstly, first part of my question is is there something implicitly true about Christianity, or is it just sort of a bit like what I consider democracy to be these days? A kind of brilliant veil for advanced tyrannies? And the second part of my career and the second part of my question is uh, if Christianity isn't, or you know, in either event, why are there these re-emergent pagan, pantheonistic, mythic themes emerging in our culture?
1: Yeah, so I think the best way to, to understand uh Christianity is that it's a at least the christianity that i care for is that it's yes and it's not a yes but which is that christianity is not christianity does not is not something which stands completely and exclusively against pagan culture that's ridiculous it doesn't appear in a vacuum it doesn't just kind of plop out and that everything before it was was completely false or completely wrong you know there there are intuitions in paganism and there are Truths in paganism, which made it pop made it that it could hold societies together for so long, for thousands of years, actually. Uh, and Christianity, when it comes, it it offers in some ways the key to those things. Kind of it kind of brings a lot of those stories to their end. Uh, like I'll give you a little example, a simple example, which is, you know, in the 19th century, there was a lot of fuss made around the idea of the de- dying and resurrecting God. And a lot of people, even the new atheist types would bring that up, right? That all these cultures have dying and resurrecting gods and they'll find different traditions, stru- or people that go into Hades, you know, to get someone, you see that in every, in every Epic, you have a character that goes down to death and either goes to see someone or bring someone out or tries to bring someone out and fails. And, and they would show that in some ways, Christ is just another version of that story. But, the thing is that Christ is the end of that story, not another version of that story. Because according to the Christian tradition, Christ, first of all, doesn't just go into death as a visitor. He dies. And then when he goes into death, by the time he's done and he's left death, death is empty. That's the tradition. We say hell is empty. Hell has been emptied of his dead. He has he the icon of the resurrection shows Christ taking Adam and Eve and pulling them out of death. And so the idea that in Christ's resurrection, we are all looking towards resurrection, no matter how you imagine it in terms of phenomena, that doesn't matter, but to understand that it is the end of the story. It's like, what story do you say after that? After death has been, has been conquered and death has been transformed and now death has lost its sting. That's the end of the story. And so Christ does that for all actually a lot of the pagan stories. He kind of brings them to their end in very surprising ways. We're we're so used to the story of Jesus that we we are now we're no longer as shocked as we should be about how 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 big it is, you could say. Um so that's maybe the answer to the the question about its relation to paganism. And so what Christianity does is that it it includes paganism in in it. This is a weird, I mean, obviously my the Protestant people watching this will hate that. But that's if you look at how it happened, that's how it happened. It takes the good things of paganism and then brings them in. It takes the good things of, you know, let's say Scandinavian culture brings them in, takes the good things of African culture, brings it in. It's a, a good Christian way of saying is that it baptizes things. It takes things from the old world, baptizes them and, and raises them up and make, in, involves them and brings them into the new world which is why Christianity looks the way it does and that also answers your other question which is about how plastic it is it's not that it's plastic is that it takes the good it you know it's a messy process but it takes the good out of cultures transforms them and points them towards the transcendent good that's what it hopes to do architecture you know music uh and then oh, even the roman empire right so you could say a lot of people think, oh, it's horrible that Constantine converted. That's the beginning of the end of Christianity. Maybe. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that there isn't evil in the state afterwards, but now there's actually a check in the system. That check sometimes goes awry, of course, but it's still there. right? The fact that we can now say today something like war is bad. <laughs> you know, Julius Caesar bragged that he killed a million Gauls. He didn't have to make excuses for it. He didn't have to say, You know, it's like, oh, you know, like how today we always have to hide it and pretend. He wasn't pretending. He's like, no, I slaughtered all these people, and that's to my glory. And that's a transformation in the state. There are many others that Christianity brings about. So Christianity ends up acting as a check on the Roman Empire. Doesn't mean that it's perfect, but this is to show how Christianity transforms reality, takes his things, baptizes them, and includes them in the in its in its life.
0: We didn't get to the green man bit, but we'll do. But we, green man. we don't need to yet because I've got a few follow up questions there. Then we'll see. Yeah. We'll make our way to that if, if, we, if we're able to, Jonathan. This image of uh, Christ as the sort of redeemer and the emptier of hell. I, I've, there's this. If you ain't seen it yet, you'll like it. I think there's a British near contemporary painter. I think he was painting in the 1950s called Stanley Spencer, who like did these beautiful depictions of biblical scenes in very... uh uh, mundial settings, like he would do Christ on the High Street, and like when he when he did Christ and uh, like the, the Resurrection happening in the churchyard in Cookham, which is where he painted. He was a nationally and indeed internationally renowned painter, and he draw like he draws that particular churchyard with those particular graves, having people sort of bursting out, looking sort of happy but bewildered to once more be out of their graves. This claim, which you say is a sort of um, not The central claim, well, maybe it's the central claim. I don't know if Christianity is the crucifixion, the central claim is the divine birth, the central claim is the trilogy, the central claim, but certainly the resurrection, you say, is like the certainly what takes it beyond what is pledged through paganism. If it ain't an entirely theological. Proposition The idea of a resurrection in a type of the way that even a secularist could appreciate it reborn unto yourself, present in the moment, the flesh man dies that the transcendent man may be eternally reborn. Joseph Campbell's idea that there is no point in Christ being resurrected 2,000 years ago if you and I can't be resurrected moment by moment into a continual present, the only place that God can truly exist. If it's not like a, a, a theological proposition that could be understood and appreciated, and even to a degree practiced by a secularist, what is it? Because when people say stuff like that about Christianity, like it's better because you know you get to be reborn or you get to be resurrected, I think, well, do you though know? <laughs> Because like I, you know, I'm not, I'm not demanding proof, <laughs> but I'm saying, how yeah. is that distinct from any pledge made by any? Myth or any ideology, how is it distinct? how other than as a theological yeah. proposition? well, I mean uh, I think that you pointed
1: at some of the things that it helps you see is that the resurrection is true all the time, right? Things die and are and and are reborn all the time. This happens you know with states it happens with with empires it happens with families it happens inside you all the time every time you repent you know that is something that happens every time you you turn away from something which is which is breaking you apart and you find new beginning that is what is happening exactly like you said now <laughs> the story is that that's actually how the world works right the world works through these death and resurrections. And what the story of Christ shows is the limit of that, right? It brings it to the limit. It, it gives you an extreme example that lays the foundation for how to experience life in the everyday. That, by the way, is what miracles always are. Miracles are never just extraordinary things that happen. They are always limit cases of, of, of how The world works in the everyday and it's the same with saints and martyrs and all this stuff right it's like you don't have to you don't have to step in between the gladiators and get killed and become a martyr and then become a saint but that's actually how you live your life with your children that's how you live your life with your with your wife with your friends you through these acts of self-sacrifice is how you are able to bind reality together reality actually binds that way but what happens in sacred stories is that those are brought to the breaking point. And so what happens, like, so people say, well, how can you believe in the resurrection, right? It's ridiculous. Jesus dies three days later. And it's like, I believe in the resurrection because it's pointing me to something which is true all the time, every day of my life. And so when I hear the extreme case, I think, of course, like that's what it all leads to, or that's where it all originates in. It's like someone dying and then unreasonably... Live being raised up from that state right not two minutes later not not like you know maybe he was dead maybe he wasn't no he was dead and then he rises up and you think well actually that's how everything works that's how my life works that how everything that is good about my life functions and so and so it's like the question is does the world work that way or not right is the world just like material causes and and accident and, and 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 chaos or is there is is this process of, of descent and ascent actually part of how the world is, functions? And if so, then when I hear the story of the resurrection, I think, huh, it's actually revealing me the pattern of everything. So I believe it because without it, there's something missing. There's like a key missing. There, there's a puzzle and I see it in paganism and I see it in other religions. There are puzzles, but they come together in that one story.
0: So you're saying almost that um, in this sacred truth, there's something truer than material truth, almost like a homeopathic exposure to a distilled version of that which is true. I noticed too, actually, Jonathan, that if you have a facility for language communication and thought, perhaps that can be a disadvantage in the felt uh, Carnal, given that we're talking about incarnation, carnal sense of what it is to live in the experience of God. Uh, lately, as I'm, as I know you're aware, because we've sort of spoken. I've gone through like some personal challenges that have been very, very painful and have amounted, on to some degree, to a kind of ego. Death, which uh, has not been without advantage, even though it has also encompassed extraordinary pain and revealed to me the depth of my attachment to other people's impressions, my personal well being, materialism, ability f- to have influence over you know, all of just a list of things that could loosely be described <laughs> as sinful. I wonder. Um, though, you know, that what what you feel about the sort of simplicity available in Christianity as well as the complexity, because there was a point very recently where I was in a pretty despairing and despondent state And like someone sent me unbidden a kind of perhaps you've heard of Rick Warren, who I understand is a sort of southern evangelist who like just told like said to camera, you know, in a sort of a TV Christianity. And like I like to think of myself as a pretty refined and intelligent guy that I wouldn't be getting my uh, Eucharist via like a Southern Christian TV where there's like a handsome white couple sat on a couch with a Southern evangelist. But I watched this sort of very simple prayer to camera from Rick Warren where, you know, he talked about his own son took his life and then he talked about the, the sort of subsequent despair, like despair, even though by that time, Rick Warren had already sold millions of books and been a very successful pastor and the sort of protege of Billy Graham. And he did this prayer where he sort of said like, you know, I put aside my need to understand. I don't need to understand how the digestive system works to enjoy a steak or the combustion engine to drive a car. And I just, Jesus, will you please be with me? And like I in my, like I became, I've become teachable, I guess. Porous is how I sometimes feel it. Uh, Sometimes, you know, like in a time of crisis, perhaps in an attempt to get beyond the ego or perhaps in an attempt to cling onto it, I've become, you know, the hucksters and, and charlatans come at me from every angle offering sort of counsel and advice. And like, you know, I could be highly susceptible to any of that stuff. And in this sort of prayer that was just Jesus, I, I don't need to understand everything, but I, I'm calling on your name. I'm calling on your name for help. I don't want to go on like this. I don't want to go on like this. I need transformation. It was effective. So I wonder what you make of the sort of potential for this to be sort of quite simple and maybe in a sort of an ultra-rational, post-enlightenment, advanced, approaching singularity culture, are the sort of difficulties of accepting such a sort of um what sometimes feels like a proposition that has too low an entry threshold?
1: Um well first of all I would say that this is the this is the in some ways the the mystery of suffering. Um you know this is also the mystery of a Christ offers, is that christ doesn't this is annoying for a lot of people the idea that christ doesn't want us to suffer is just not true the idea that god doesn't want us to suffer is just not true you know god wants us to be better god wants us to be the best version of ourselves he wants us to be shining images of his glory and his love and whatever it takes man and so suffering is a. Uh, you know, it's a, like you said, it's sometimes a way to see our attachments and to see our passions and to see the things that are our actual gods, um even if they're good, even if they're good things in themselves, uh, and they're a call to see through them, to see through our desires towards something else. because, like you said, sometimes it's we're being ripped apart. And so, there is nothing to hold on to, right? If you lose the things that you're holding on to at some point, you know, and this is obviously the, this whole, the whole image of hitting rock bottom, but that doesn't have to be, you don't have to be drunk at the bottom of an alley for you to hit rock bottom. It can happen in more subtle ways where you can see that these things that I hold on to, they are they're superficial compared to what is behind them and what is true. And so I'm I I'm sorry you know I was sorry to hear about a lot of the things that you've been through. It's it's rough, uh, and I hope I hope like I hope that that they will be for you a, a kind of way to to see through everything. Um, but as for the the simplicity, you know, Christianity offers a way in which things scale, and this is one of the things that people struggle to understand sometimes about religion is that the way that christianity presents itself is that it's as accessible to you know your great grandmother who couldn't read as it is to the great scholar you know that spent his entire life studying theological text and so there's both a immediate simplicity in that abandon that you describe and then there's also all the subtlety and all the you know all the philosophy that that the west has to offer and so it scales uh, but it scales in a lot of ways, which is that Christianity has Christianity calls us to experience it also amongst each other. It is not presented to us as an individual thing. So we we do of course have an individual part where we give ourselves to God and we abandon ourselves to Christ, like you described. But then that calls us to then enter into communion with others, right? And to that's what the life of the church is: is to be with others, people that you wouldn't have chosen, people that aren't like you, people that, that are, that are annoying and are wonderful and are, you know, and, and, and to kind of enter into that, that communion, uh, both in terms of worship and in terms of just living life, because that's life. That's how life works, right? We aren't individual, just individuals. We're supposed to, our individual transformation has to, it's a overflow into, into our communion with others. And so that's why Christianity looks the way it does. That's why it's not just something that happens on your couch, although it is, it has buildings and, and meetings and common worship and common prayer. And it, 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 it it scales all the way up to, you know, to, to the bishop, you know, crowning the king or 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 a prayer at a political event, which you think, ah, it's annoying. I wish it was just this individual individual transformation. but that's actually the the nature of what it is is that it it can flower up and kind of participate in all aspects of society,
0: yeah, it's difficult that whole uh, unto Caesar, what is Caesar's thing because it's like it leaves us with a kind of the sense that perhaps, that it's incomplete it gives us a sense that it's incomplete while i recognize what you're saying in terms of scale like it you know there are questions about the sort of the, the historic catholic church there are questions about crusades there are questions about yeah indeed the the coronation of a monarch and what that and that's why you get i feel like a vast swathe of like you know like the last great uh, most recent intellectual movement is anti-church because it's so easy to equate church power with centralist power and to see christianity as a palliative and as uh, 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 you know, palliative, panacea, placebo, uh, 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 and a kind of um, a tranquilizer, you know, mm. like and uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like that kind of the kind of martyrdom of the early Christians and the sort of sacrifice of Christ and the obvious um, radicalism of the, shall we say, the historic Christ, is like, you know, I feel that that feels like a call. That feels like a call. Um, and yet there is there are many aspects of Christianity that seem to be uh, counselling a kind of acceptance of, you know, we're not going to go turn over the tables. We're not going to like be marching on the great sort of centres of power. And uh, sometimes I feel that, Uh, Particularly with what's happening now, uh, politically, that that feels like a limitation rather than an advantage, Jonathan. What do you think? So the thing is
1: that power is the, the question of power and authority is not simple. It's not it's not it's never just that there's a tyrant that a tyrant alone cannot rule over you right the tyrant in his room that tells you what to do cannot rule over you for a tyrant to rule there has to be an entire scale of acceptance and there has to be compromise all through the system of of society uh you know this is what solzhenitsyn discovered right is that is that for the 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 tyrant to rule you know uh, there has to be a the road, the road had been paved with lies by everyone, not just from above, but every everyone through the system is corrupt. For that to happen, and so the 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 image that Christians are trying to, at least the Christianity that I care for deeply, is trying to to promote is to say that in that world, a revolution or a standing up against authority, it will only perpetuate the same system because who are you going to replace the tyrant with another tyrant another one of us that's completely corrupt and completely and uh, you know and so the transformation has to happen from within it's like a ripple from within and so the answer is to become a saint and by the way like if you think about christianity the whole history of christianity and you talk about the popes and priests that is true there's always corruption which sets itself up in any system but christianity is the Christianity rests on the Saints doesn't rest on the authorities although the authorities are necessary we need the authorities but the story of Christianity is told through the Saints and the Saints are not bound by the authority right they kind of stand above it they are shining lights to which the authorities are meant to look at and to model their behavior over um and so of course it's always going to be corrupt but there's a way in which for example a figure like Saint Francis Francis in the West you know his, way of transforming the 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 med- medieval society was amazing because he didn't do it with revolution, right? He did it through the very strange behavior where he would he would he could humiliate a priest by humbling himself before him, right? He could kiss a priest's hand in a manner that would shame the priest into transformation. And these are the types of gestures that Christians pose all through the history of Christianity. That are similar to the, you know, to the man standing between the gladiators, which is the way in which true transformations happens without opposition. Because one of the problems with revolution, right, is that it's a dual, it's a dual thing, right? And it's the same with the culture war. Let's say that's happening in North America. It's like, what happens if the Republicans win? It means that half the country has lost. So do you think that that's winning? That's not winning. What happens if the Democrats win? It means that fifty percent of the country is lost. That's not winning. You're not going to win by just humiliating half of the population. The true transformation is one which can happen without opposition, right? That's the the image that Christ is. It's a non-dual transformation, and that's the transformation that Christ surprisingly offers, and it's not an easy one. I'm not saying, like, I don't want to die. I don't want to sacrifice myself. Nobody wants that, but nonetheless, if you run it through your mind, you'll see that it's really the only transformation that can have long-term effects is one which doesn't increase polarization and doesn't increase duality, but is like this seed that is planted that ripples out. Right. And then attracts people like magnets to that transformation. And so you become like a shining example in your family, in your community, in the people around you, and you inspire people to change rather than fight them off or, you know, oppose them in that, that simple way.
0: Is that, Jonathan, do you think why asceticism remains so important in Christianity, but perhaps in all faiths, even in cults? If you can see that people have material carnal attachments, if you see that people are interested in sex or pleasure or food or domination or status, then there's always a suspicion that everything else they do is to is mobilized behind the pursuit of goals that anybody can easily understand status power procreation but when someone seems to be able to invert subvert reverse the polarity of the charges of the material world it seems there is a genuine power in it and and indeed i suppose that is another that exemplifies further this ability to die unto yourself because perhaps among the more obvious dualities of male, female, dark night, and these might be false dichotomies, who are we to know how the universe works at depth? Although there seems to be a pretty interesting wave particle duality going on down there in the true, true poetry of the submolecular that if you, even if death and life are overcome by your personal conduct then that truly yes it does become it becomes like a it becomes a crucifixion it becomes it becomes a uh, a, a living sign that's a, that's uh, radiant seductive and uh, powerful is that what you are saying
1: yeah I, I, that's true and that, that's why the for example like the ascetics are shining examples and that's how to, it's really in some ways the best way to understand what saints are is that they are shining examples of things that you normal uh, normal us have to deal with it in every day. It's like they they take that to the extreme and so become like a summit. So you know, an ascetic that lives in a cave somewhere that just prays all day, does prostrations, you know, eats three leaves a day or whatever. Like all these crazy stories that you hear about about ascetics, you know. We don't have access to that. But if they become shining examples for us, then maybe I can sacrifice that second beer because I love my son. Like maybe I can, I can not, I can not uh do the things that bring me immediate pleasure in moments where I need to submit that to a higher good. And so they become examples for just yeah, just our everyday life. And hopefully, in terms of Christianity in the church also, they become examples even the fact that we set them up as examples you know uh, an ascetic will shame a pope you know if the pope is is extreme he might be extreme but the that having that image of the ascetic as being the highest will will shame them you know and will ultimately have an effect on the way in which you know uh, religious authorities act which is different again like we have to understand which is different from the pagan lord that just rapes and pillages and kills anybody they want and you know subjugates people without any uh, excuse we always forget how you know when the Scandinavians came down onto Christian society you know they had a completely different set of values which was basically just kill rape pillage dominate and and brag about it not 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 uh, feel bad about it in any way not feel ashamed
0: yes yes power only power That's only- right. Power on this plane, only power on this bandwidth. Do you think that uh, what you've described around saints is, do you think that they are um, idols and are not attainable or is the function of Christianity to create the conditions of sainthood in all of us or, as you've just indicated, merely to provide us a sort of a scale where we can, you know, in our own lives make offerings?
1: well it's both right it's a it's a scale so that you can climb it right it's a it gives you shining examples so that you can follow and so that you can be transformed obviously we're all called to become saints uh that's the that's the purpose and not not for some just like weird moral thing but to our own joy and for our own transformation and our own freedom right because the the ascetic that reaches you know the ascetic that reaches you could say the purpose of his journey is free. He's he's free and full of joy and full of hope. You know, you know, I've met we were at Mount we were on Mount Athos just a few months ago. I went with Jordan Peterson, by the way. And we met, we met, you know, the 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 head of a monastery there. And he was just beaming.
0: Wow. I mean he
1: was shining. He would he he had the simplicity and exactly could speak in those simple terms. It's a very simple Christian truth, but there was so much of um there was so much truth behind his words and and there was something i you know unless you met someone like that it's hard to explain it like they just they're just glowing not physically but they there's something about it that reduces you to silence uh and that's what we're all called to
0: but seeing it makes you see that it's possible and that it's something that we can move towards. Yeah, I think when you're right when that when that power is encountered it's pretty beautiful. Like uh, in my own life once in a while I've encountered saintly beings and I feel like they you couldn't get them to go like that, you wouldn't. They wouldn't suddenly go. Oh no, my car! You know, they wouldn't suddenly panic. You know, and you know, it feels like that. In a, and is it like in a lot of my understanding of Vedic literature is that this is accessible within us that there is an energy source within us that will provide limitless bliss it's available and we cannot access it because of the uh, sed- sediment of the of our carnal nature, like an idea that we've got caught in the heaviness, we've got caught in the heaviness of self. It's very uh, beautiful to encounter that power, but I've also heard of people that live for many years in monasteries or You know, live mendicant lifestyles, and then come back into a culture, and like it's quite common. I feel like in the sort of sixties, a lot of those guys that went and lived ashram life and got enlightened with great uh, gurus came back and just lost themselves in hedonism. It's like Mm. there's there's not a continual inoculation. I wonder, do you think? uh, Because I wanted to, like, we're coming to the end of this particular Christian conversation that we're embarking on, Jonathan. Like, do you think there is a need? Do you think that the stories are sufficient, we, um, and how do we deal with uh, the kind of uh, uh, the, the 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 lexicon and uh, the 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 syntax of this? Because. You know, like when a figure like C.S. Lewis is able to mobilize Christian thought, because for me, at least my take on him is that he's able to re-engage academics and able to re-engage intellectuals and he's able indeed to tell stories in a new way or Tolkien, who I know you care about and stuff uh, like uh, he's able to revivify the uh, uh, imagination of of a version of Christianity that starts to feel Arcane and not in a good way. That starts to feel like a little encrusted in candelabras and dust. Like I wonder if you feel that there are new new ways to tell this story or new ways to live this story. Are both of those things important?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think that this is actually a crucial time because, like you said, we're at the end. We're in this meaning crisis where all of a sudden people. Are noticing that their little life of Netflix and porn is just not enough, and we saw it because we were given it in abundance during COVID, right? It's like just stay at home and and just you know revel in your own you know your own uh, desires, and people became crazy. People started losing their minds, and there have been waves of conversions, by the way, like in the Orthodox tradition that I that I'm part of you know so many churches like my church has tripled in after since covid and it's happened all over north america and it's all young men uh, mostly that are intellectual looking for meaning looking for for uh, for purpose and so i think that it's a crucial time right now where there is this possibility of help of people seeing again what these things are for right it's not just about morality it's not just about you know, feeling guilty or whatever thing you might think Christianity is about. It is about, you know, finding purpose and being transformed. Now, that's one. In terms of stories, I think it's the same. You know, as as I said, as as Hollywood is running out of steam as the culture machine is basically now just turning over the same crap that they've been, you know, putting out for the past two generations, there is an opportunity of storytelling to recapture storytelling and to retell even, you know, the, the fairy tales or these ancient stories, to retell them with a bright voice. Um, and I mean, that's one of the things that I'm doing, for example, I think you you probably know that I'm starting to publish these uh, fairy tales again. So I, I published, just published Snow White, and I'm going to publish a series of fairy tales that are going back into the tradition with kind of a, a kind of celebratory tone, right a, a, a joyful tone where we look at the stories and and uh, and celebrate them really. Now that there's been cynicism since the 60s, it's like there's actually a possibility of recelebrating these ancient stories in a way that points towards their meaning. And I think we can do that for a lot a lot of things right now. I think it's actually an opportunity right now there are many opportunities for transformation.
0: What do you think this is? Meta modernity that, that there will still be the sort of post modern cynicism, but in a new emergent necessity for meaning. What do you think is the original context of a story uh, like Snow White that you have uh, rewritten? And what do you and how? What do you think are the failings of postmodernity? I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's sort of contributed to the crisis of uh, meaning because it's just art taken the bottom out of everything. Um, and um, um, what is there to galvanize in those kind of uh, in folklore and in folklore and fairy tales that is uh, extra is it extraneous to Christianity or is it within the uh, uh, within the purview of Christianity I'm guessing within given that it's you that's done this and, and if so how so yeah well, in terms of postmodernity it's interesting like i'm not an i i am i do take
1: some aspects of postmodernity uh quite seriously i think that postmodernity is useful because you know let's say the the really modern or the puritan ap- approach to fairy tales for example was horrible right it's like let's take these stories that have a kind of grit to them that have a kind of uh, a darkness or a messiness to them let's make them into simple morality tales and so we take out all the all the kind of grungy bit out of the fairy tales, we present them as these very clean stories. But that's not what the fairy tales were. And the postmoderns realized that, and so they just said, "Well, let they just said let's expose all the grit, or let's expose all the cynicism, all the dark power dynamics, all the sexual stuff in the fairy tales, uh, you know, and let's ignore these puritan versions." And I think it's both. I think I think the stories are powerful, beautiful, shining examples of how to be and not to be. But there's also in them a way of exploring some of these darker themes. And so the way that I'm doing these stories, you know, I'm not taking out all the sexual uh, references, like they're there in the story, but I'm also not emphasizing it in a way that is kind of dark and cynical. It's just part of the story. This is the story. Um, And so I think that that's one of the solutions to the postmodern morass is to be aware of the kind of. Let's say the, the the grittier part, or the 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 slidey part, the sliding part of the stories, and including it in the in a higher tale, right? To have the margins and the center together, to not just have the center or the margins, but to bring them together in one story. So that's been my approach to the to the fairy tales.
0: Cool. When you do that with something like Snow White, I'm guessing that like with there are sort of um, functional. No folklore would succeed if it did not have a functionality. I suppose. So uh, like, you know, I suppose there are sort of social codes and ethics and things to do with chastity baked uh, baked into Snow White. The inability of Snow White to evade her own female darkness if she's not willing to voyage into the forest. I'd like to know what them underground miners go down into the unconscious and they mine. For jewels, <laughs> why seven? I'd like to know that. Uh, yeah. And uh, like, and um, and uh, the apple has to be given as a gift. And the apple is perhaps the most potent fruit, isn't it? It's something whole. It could, features in the origin story of our kind, and and uh, of uh, the of obviously Christian mythology. And the idea of the poisoned apple, that which looks whole, uh, being toxic. That the mother, the dark mother, will give you a toxic gift. Tell me, like, uh, how sort of some of that Jungian stuff. Comes out in your retelling. Yeah, so, uh, I
1: mean, there, there, there are a lot of things going on in the story. So, in terms of the dwarves, one of the best ways I think to understand the dwarves is you imagine. So, Snow White, obviously, she reaches her teenage period. That's what's happening, right? She is, she is entering puberty. She's being transformed. All of a sudden, she becomes a threat to the woman, to the mother. You know, all of a sudden, this this young girl now is becoming a woman. She's beautiful, um, and then, and so she she gets cast into the forest and she deals with you could say, the problems of femininity at the outset. She deals with the problems of puberty and not the solution to it. And so she has to learn to work. She has to learn to clean the house. She she has all these kind of annoying parts of what the female role was traditionally. And then also she's she's surrounded by these idiosyncratic men that are all, you know, that are just like little men that aren't really men. They can't really be her priest, they're her priest, her. they can't be her prince. They're just, you know, ah. and Disney gets that right too. It's like, it's like all these weird aspects of manliness, you know, like Sneezy and Doc, like, and and kind of dopey guy. And they're, let's say they're fragmented masculinity. Excellent. And then what she has to find is ultimately her mate she has to find her prince the one that can that can show her what this transformation is for right which is ultimately to be married and to have children right that's what puberty is leading towards is is fertility and and the capacity to engage in sexual union uh and so that's that's a good way and so that's a dark time right she goes into the forest and she has to like i said she has to learn to work she feels like she's in a stranger's house right she's not at home with herself, with her situation. And she has to kind of get through that in order to find a new home. And in some ways she has to die. It's also part of the menstrual cycle, like the monthly menstrual cycle, there's like a little death and then a rebirth at every cycle. Cool. Uh, so that's a little image of that. Yeah. But in terms of the the, the apple, um, it really has to do with Adam and Eve. It really is a, a play on the story of Adam and Eve. And the, the problem of beauty, the problem of supplement, Right. so the in the story of in the story of Snow White, the original the Grimms version, for example, uh, the Queen goes to see Snow White three times. So the first time she brings her a decorative comb, and the second time she brings her like a corset or a, or or like a, a belt or something. And it's very mysterious because you think, isn't Snow White the most beautiful girl of all? So why is she trying to give her things to supplement her beauty? Why is he trying to put makeup on the most beautiful girl in the world? And that's the mystery of beauty, right? The weaponized beauty or the the artificial beauty versus true beauty. And that has to do with self-consciousness of beauty, right? When someone becomes self-conscious of their beauty, then they're capable of weaponizing it to manipulate others. And that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to kill her by making her self-conscious of her beauty so that she then can become like her, basically, become like the queen, which is a weaponized beauty. And the apple ultimately, that's what it is. It's in the original version, it says that the apple was polished smooth like a mirror. Right? That's the mirror. That's the that's the queen's mirror. The queen's mirror is not a magic mirror, really. It's just a mirror. It's self-conscious beauty. It's the capacity to see yourself from the outside, to judge yourself. In terms of your beauty, and that makes it that that's what makes you put on makeup, let's say. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So that's what's going on in that story. Yeah. Make you self conscious of your beauty, and that will destroy it or kill you. And the primary relationship is the relationship with the self that the self has replaced God. That your primary relationship with the external world is a, is a, uh, a replication, a reciprocal yourself, relationship with the right. self. So the self has become the deity. That's cool. That's really cool analysis. Do you, so is that the function of the apple then in, the, uh, in Genesis? It has to do with knowledge. I
1: think that's what it is. I'm pretty sure because in the, in the biblical story, it has to do with knowledge, which leads to self-consciousness, right? So Adam, in, Adam eats the apple and then he feels naked and now he has to cover himself. In the Snow White story it's kind of reverse where the queen is enticing her to cover herself, enticing her to put something out there, right? To 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 put on the decorative comb, to to wear a corset to enhance her beauty. Uh in the in Adam and Eve story it happens in reverse where they eat the apple first and then they want to cover themselves, but it's still the same structure if you see it, kind of if, if you see it from outside you can see how it's the same pattern and it has to do with It has to do with self consciousness. The problem of self consciousness.
0: Yes, and objective. In our
1: version of Snow White, for example, we have it. Her holding a hand mirror, and it's a phone. Like she's just holding a phone. You can see it in the image, right? She's holding this hand mirror and looking at herself, and it's like that reflection, you know, and that those likes and those um, those comments that give that make us feel like we have worth, external validation
0: also as a paradigm they're both about objectification and material materialization ie yeah. the the ineffable made ob- objectified when it remains ineff- ineffable it remains in the ter- the, ter- the territory of divinity it's still sublimated once it's objectified then it's you know you've just put cast more territory into you've given yet more unto caesar why do you think yeah. that, why do you think that more female centric folk tales have Succeeded, uh, then you know you have to dig around for male uh, male fairy tales. You know, do you think it's because there's customarily more pressure on females to socially conform because of the sort of biological uh, challenges that females traditionally and more generally have? Why? Why? Why would that be? Would it because why are there more? mm, I,
1: I mean, I think that for sure that there's a for sure when when when. Girls hit puberty, they have to deal with it, like in a in a way more than guys. Like guys, we have to deal with it too. But there's a reality to transformation which is way more risky for girls than it is for men. You know, it's like you can get pregnant, you know, that's a big deal. That'll change everything in your life. And so I think for sure the fact that a lot of these stories have to do with the transformation and kind of learning about this transformation are part of our of our. Let's say the fairy tales that have risen to the surface in in the modern world. Uh, but there are a lot of, of fairy tales that also have male characters. They're just a little less known in the modern world for some reason. But, but you know, we have Jack and the Beanstalk. That's part of the series we're going to have. I have the violent little tailor. Uh, we're gonna have different versions of those kind of those those more male-led fairy tales as well.
0: That's pretty cool. That'd be a cool one. Jack and the Beanstalk. quite well, he has to, he gets that magical seed. He exchanges it for something practical. The bloody idiot. Then he like, the, then he can reach the sky in this magical plant. And then he's got to confront a giant. And then he's a, essentially a king if he does that. Well, that's
1: it, it, that story. I love that story. Like when I was a kid, I loved that story, and I I I loved it and hated it because I didn't understand it. Why do I love this story? And I remember being a kid and thinking, first of all, Jack, why is Jack the hero? He's just a thief. Like, why is is he the main character of the fairy tale? And I was always bothered by that when I was a kid. I was like, I love this story, but I don't, I didn't know why. And so I've been meditating on it forever, uh, thinking about it for a very long time. And I think that I've cracked some aspects of it in terms of what the story is about, you know, and it's, it is about discovering what masculinity is. That's what the story is about and dealing with that. So, he, I mean, first of all, he trades a cow for seeds. That gives you a nice hint right away. Ah, he yeah. doesn't have a father. He lives ah. with his mother. Then he takes the cow and he trades it for seeds. Cool. But those seeds, he doesn't understand. His mother doesn't understand the value of the seed.
0: Cool. Doesn't understand
1: the value of this point, right? The thing that has the pattern in it, But doesn't have the body, right? What is that? What is that? What is this thing that has a pattern but doesn't have a body? What is this idea of something, right? That's what a seed is. A seed is a pattern without body. So it's it's close to the notion of idea. And that's what that's what Jack is going to get in the beanstalk. He climbs up. Cool. Right. At first he gets the riches. Then he gets the source of riches, right? He gets the chicken that lays a golden egg. It's like, no, riches is one thing, but wait a minute, that's not good enough. Like if I get the thing that makes you rich, oh, then I've got more than riches, right? Then I've got the pattern of how to produce riches. Oh, nice. And then it's like, well, there's actually one more, which is something like the music of the spheres, right? It's something like the pattern of all reality. And that's the final thing that he gets. He gets the harp. The golden harp that plays the music of the world. It's like if I can get the pattern of everything, then all the things will lay themselves out, right And b- below that. And that's what Jack is about. It really is about, uh, you know, in some
0: ways that what is a seed
1: and what is a pattern and what how does it how does it land
0: in the world? cool so like it's functioning on a, a few levels there because yeah you've got to trade the milk for the sperm at some point to become an actualized male then there's the yeah. potentiality of the the, the beanstalk the beast and and i like that you know uh, that the template of sky father and earth mother is a strong pagan uh ideal that the father is sky that so the father you would think it would be uh, you know, for, because of Mars and martiality, that men and steel and men and flesh would be a sort of a perpetuated theme, but continually, theologically and theosophically, you find maleness and air equated. And I reckon, yeah, you nailed it there. It's because it's the um, unembodied potentiality. And I love that. The first thing you get is riches in the thought, yeah, the gold or the egg. Then you get the ability to generate it, as well as the sort of uh, the chicken egg famous sort of foam. Maxim, and then ultimately, yeah, you get the ineffable, ethereal, ulterior reality from which reality is played. And whether that's the harp in Gaelic mythology or the flute in you know Krishna and many other, like the sort of that music of the spheres thing, as well, yeah, that that vibe, and in the beginning, there was the word. Vibration, the vibration that precedes matter, that there's presumably some point where matter, where vibration materializes, Uh, or as Bill Hicks's joke used to have it, um, that all matter is energy condensed to a slow vibration, that at some point we have to straddle this space between the unrealized, unmanifest, and the manifest, And, and that that is the journey of the male. The journey of the male will do that. I reckon that the reason that male folklore isn't successful. Is it's helpful to have mediocre males, mediocritized, unrealized, unawakened males. You don't want societies full of awakened, oppositional males. And with females, there's the, the, the obvious functional requirement that those all of those fairy tales that we've touched upon deal with. That's pretty cool. You only thing on the Pied Piper, I once wrote a version of that, which I should have put more effort into. I got the ambiguity of the figure pretty, pretty good, but I never f- truly... Understood the nature of the bargain, you know. He goes to the town. He's got he's got some weird Christianity in it. There's that lame child. There's a lame child that is spared the purge. He first of all clears the town of rats. Then the town knock him on the rat deal. Like they don't pay the Pied Piper. And then the Pied Piper comes back and he takes all the children. And I think that like it ends on that. It ends yeah, on it's that. It's a pretty it,
1: horrible story. It's
0: so brutal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's so brutal uh i mean you could say that it 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 has to do it has to do exactly with the with the with the deal right it has to do with the problem of the of the deal the the how can i say this and so the 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 the, 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 the town makes a deal with a stranger that that's the best way to understand it Someone who's not part of their unity.
0: Plus, he's but not that good deal, or bad, huh? He's not good or bad. He's black and well, white. He's pies. ambiguous.
1: He's that's ambiguous. what a stranger is. An ambig- And an, an, a stranger is ambiguous. Now the problem is that if you once you include something in in a town or something that's not part of it, and then you give it uh, responsibility and power, you have to be aware of that, right? You have to you have to pay the piper, or else. You know, or else that influence will take over. It's the best way to understand that. That influence will kind of... Uh, so, so uh, uh, you know, a good example would be, uh, think of the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire tries to need soldiers. So they're like, let's just get these barbarians and bring the barbarians in and they'll fight for us. But their allegiance is not to the Roman Empire. So if you don't if you don't care for them in the right way, they'll they're just going to take you over. Obviously, mm. at some point they're just going because they don't care about your goals. They want to get paid. If you pay them, if you if you give them what they ask for, then they'll they'll remain ambiguous and they will play the role that they're playing. But if but if you don't if you don't manage that relationship properly. Then at some point they'll take your kids. That's um, cool. they'll, yeah.
0: It's about See, these are dark
1: stories, like really about how reality works in ways that a lot of, let a lot of red pill, red pill, uh, realities. Let's say.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was thinking then about the nature of the mercenary, that the mercenary has no right. attachment. And I was relating that to something you said earlier in our conversation that we've noticed the trend, one of the trends of globalism is the breakdown of these intermediary institutions from family to church, to community, you know, like a hundred years ago, I reckon anyone you spoke to would belong to a church and a cricket club and like various little organizations. And now increasingly people are sort of looped off, staring just in, into solitary mirrors like trapped in that, you know, trapped in the device, in narcissism, narcissism, solipsism, and onanism. And to break out of that, yeah, you do require the transcendent experience. And I feel like that these kind of pacts, the Pied Piper Pact, the Barbarian Pact, might be at a contractual tipping point right now. Like what I feel is one of the macro arguments, Jonathan, is that the technological and communication power that has been harnessed could lead to mass decentralisation of power it could lead to communities becoming democratised, sharing of resources, what happened with Napster, what happened with the Arab Spring the ability for revolution overthrow, fast turnaround of power, end of dynasty emergence of mass decentralisation localism, the slaying of the titans, the behemoth could be slain the serpent could have its head cut off but so to maximally apart that power requires a, like barbaric centralization but because those kind of tropes have dropped out of our discourse they have to be or- ornamented as this is to protect the vulnerable to protect the vulnerable we have to censor everything that you're saying is going to hurt vulnerable people you <laughs> like it, it's been the most awful type of uh, inversion the sort of dark alchemy of the of the tyrant mm. you know yeah, well, it's interesting
1: because the the uh, the te- technology question and the phone question and all of these are actually good a good example of the Pied Piper story. This is this is if you want to understand the Pied Piper story, it's a great it's a great way to understand it, which is that you know we create powerful technologies that are added to us, right? Technology is supplement; it is not. From our nature, it's something that you add to yourself. That's what the pipe Piper is, right? The stranger comes in, we add his power to ours, uh, and we do it to get rid of the rat. So we say, we say something like, "Well, Neuralink is great because it'll help people walk." I mean, don't you want people to walk, Russell? Like, don't you want people <laughs> well, you who can't walk to, to walk?
0: You like people in right. wheelchair? We'll you get off on that?
1: that's right and so and so but then if you're not attentive to it in the proper manner right then you know obviously then it'll rule over you and take your children neuralink is the mm-hmm. scariest technology to ever come about on the horizon of human experience and and it's being like you said it's being promoted a lot of these technologies are promoted with the desire to help the get rid of the rats um but ultimately if we're not careful they'll take our children and that's what happened with cell phones right it's like our now our kids are completely uh taken up by tiktok they're hypnotized you know by the by the music and yeah. uh
0: because in a sense, yeah, say, say Jonathan, in it, safety and convenience, like think how many measures are into all measures now, all globalist uh, centralizing measures, safety or convenience are always the lubricant that is deployed yep. to uh, to gain entry. And uh, I feel Maybe like, sometimes we have to do with a few rats. That's right. Just leave, uh, them, leave
1: them there. In Even a, the rats. A few rats are fine. Tidy up.
0: With them. Tidy up your food. Don't leave shit everywhere. <laughs> Be hygienic. Or as our mutual friend would say, clean your goddamn room, man. Tidy your room. Don't leave scraps all over the floor. Otherwise, you know, otherwise those Pied Piper types, they'll benefit. That's right. That's right. Exactly amazing jonathan that was good what that was we did 70 we were talking for 75 minutes there it was a beautiful journey from christianity to pagan folklore all the while cruising gently through personal and cultural morality and what may be transcendent of that and from what it might be ultimately derived some unifying sense of oneness the possibility of the divine being realized here it's good chat man thank you very much jonathan
1: that was great to talk. Thanks, Russell. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, let's do it every Christmas. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Anytime. <laughs>